Welcome to Holistic Trauma Healing, a podcast that empowers you to heal trauma in the same way it has affected you as a whole person. I am Lindsay Lockett, your host. I have discovered a profound path to healing trauma that allows us to move out of the role of victim and into the role of empowered and conscious creator of our best possible reality. I offer hope, healing insights, and practical tips as you get to the root of how trauma has affected every part of your existence and how to weave a new web of life that isn't ruled by the past. Hey Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Let's continue our conversation about addiction and trauma and recovery and let's talk some more about the nuts and bolts of deeper work in addiction recovery. Can we do that? Let's do it. All right. I don't even know where to start because I don't know anything about deeper recovery as an addict or an alcoholic. So give it to mm. me like like Michael Scott says to Oscar, explain this to me like I'm five. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, a lot of people getting sober and getting into recovery is the first step. And it's, I don't minimize it, of course, because it's necessary uh, for deeper healing and transformation to put the substances down, but it's also just the beginning. And what I mean by that is just the beginning is as we spoke earlier in the conversation that using drugs and alcohol is just a response to the pain that's inside and putting down the substance necessarily doesn't get rid of the pain that's inside or the trauma that's inside. So that's when the person begins to embark on their deeper journey into healing. What I've found in my own personal experiences, there had to have been a time where I was ready for that. If you were to tell me to start doing my inner work and start healing the wound with my inner child and start titrating the traumatic energy out of my nervous system, when I was early into recovery, I would be like, what, what language are you speaking to me? I, I don't understand. I don't, that doesn't, I, I don't resonate with that. What's going on. And it's often that people come to a pivotal point in their life and recovery that gets them on the path of really healing. So for example, some of my clients having a real first relationship that's actually meaningful to them in their recovery, and then it gets broken apart or they have a bad breakup or anxiety or depression set in. These are huge moments where people start to shift and say, okay, there's something else I need to do. There's more work that needs to be done or traumatic, you know, memories start to reoccur and they don't know what to do with them. So there's something that I think nudges us on our path to healing, even though we're in recovery. I've met some people too, that have just dove deep into the work from the beginning, such as, as we go on and share about psychedelic therapy and so forth, that they get right into it because they've been suffering with an opiate addiction or heroin addiction, and they just need something profound such as ibogaine ceremony or therapy for them to really be catapulted ayahuasca journeys and that kind of gets them on the path really quick now myself and other people like luke story have said why don't you just start doing your deep work in the beginning and just really get to it and get it done it's a process and many of us aren't really ready for that many of us just want to put the substances down and start there which is okay and what I'm saying is there's deeper work 
than that, than just putting the substance down. Yeah, for sure. So you said a phrase that I haven't heard ever before. So I want you to elaborate on it. You said titrating the trauma energy out of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah. So trauma, once again, trauma is what happens within our bodies, right? So there can be a, a traumatic situation and that affects us in our nervous system. For example, there's a sense of overwhelm that our nervous system couldn't process. Maybe it's a rape, maybe it's a, a car accident, maybe it's a fall, maybe it's a violent attack, maybe it's something, and those are the big traumas per se that are, are obvious. But what happens with trauma is the energy, the cycle of energy gets stuck and we don't complete it. So healing from trauma is all about completing those cycles, which include titrating and, and allowing the energy that's stuck in the nervous system to be released out of it. There are basically a couple situations where trauma happens and in most situations, for example, humans and domesticated animals become traumatized. Animals in the wild do get traumatized, but rarely. And from studying the work of Peter Levine and his great contribution by looking at mammalians and mammals and seeing how their nervous systems respond to threat in the wild, and how the animal naturally allows the energy to discharge from its body so it can find that balance again, that homeostasis. So where it's not thinking about the wolf that was just chasing it. For example, when there's, a, there's great videos on YouTube as it relates to like a gazelle getting chased by a cheetah and the cheetah catching the gazelle. And true story, I'll just give you a little synopsis. I'll, I'll explain it. Cheetah catches the gazelle, asphyxiates it, has its snout over the gazelle's nose. The gazelle drops down. This is being videotaped. You could watch it. We can put it in the show notes for the listeners. Gazelle is clearly what it looks like to be dead. There's no rhythm in the chest. There's no breath. The eyes are glazed over. It's slumped. It's completely done. All of a sudden, baboons come in. They, ch they chase off the cheetah. So the gazelle's just laying there. People are watching it. And all of a sudden, you see the chest come up and start breathing again. So sympathetic arousals kicked in. Now the breast is coming. And then before you know it, the, the, the gazelle sits up and he trembles and shakes for about two minutes. And what's happening when that animal is doing that? He's discharging the energy from his nervous system, because when he got caught by the cheetah, he had so much energy in the system that he didn't get a chance to complete it. So all that activation, right, is being let out and released after the fact. And he shakes, rattles and rolls, and he gets up and he runs away. And I'm sure he doesn't think about that cheetah again. Now us humans, our prefrontal cortex gets in the way. So our hierarchy of thinking, and sometimes it gets in the way such as 
oh my God, I'm feeling these certain feelings or trembling or shaking when I'm in a session or when an emotional release comes up. How often do we suppress what we're feeling because we don't want someone to see us crying? We don't want to see us just, we don't want to feel this overwhelmed feeling, right? Of this discharge. So we just shut it down. And with the help of someone who knows what they're doing in safety, we can allow ourselves to feel what's underneath and what's connected, the emotion that's connected to the story, right? So there's the story and then there's the traumatic activation that's actually embedded in the nervous system. So helping the person titrate and, and let that out a little at a time supports the healing, not too much because we don't want to re-traumatize, but we hold safe space for that energy to be discharged. Then from there, this new life force can come in with creativity, with ability to access the present moment. And this is a process over time. So that's the situation with titrating and releasing the energy out of the nervous system. Love it. So I am a huge fan of shaking and I would definitely like to put that video that you just talked about in the show notes. The gazelle, if it was laying there, not breathing, eyes glazed over, totally still, was it in a freeze response? Absolutely. It's okay. in catonic immobility, which if we translate that to some neuroscience now, it would be the dorsal vagal response of the nervous system from Stephen Porges's. So you're totally disconnected. You're shut down. We would go into this state when we were going to be eaten by predators. So we wouldn't feel, right. but many of us, when trauma, trauma happens and situations happen, we disassociate, we check out, we don't allow ourselves or trauma victims don't have the ability or access to their bodies per se. We're living between the chin and the crown again in this world of constant thinking and past or future. So yes, that would be a dorsal vagal response. Yeah, incredible. I also love that you pointed out that we're mammals too, just like the gazelle is, but because of our cultural conditioning, these responses that we would normally have if we were living 10,000 years ago, or if we were wild, like the gazelle is, of shaking, crying, having these like physical discharges of energy would be completely normal, but, but due to our cultural conditioning, they're not normal. And we're crazy if we do these things. And yeah, it just, it seems to me like our culture itself has set us all up to live in this constant state of like chronic stress and chronic trauma, because there's these like weird societal rules about what behaviors are acceptable to do in public. And then also like I've worked with people one-on-one -on -one doing some trauma coaching and people have told me that even when no one is watching, even when they're alone in their house, they have a really hard time just shaking or moving or crying because they feel silly or stupid or weird. So yeah, I'm just sharing that. I don't really have a question. <laughs> I'm just sharing that. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. And I think in older cultures, when let's just say back in the day, when we went out to hunt and, and a brontosaurus came over and ripped our friend apart to pieces, and we watched that, there were ways of coming back into community, into tribe and, and discharging that energy, such as dancing around a fire and expressing our voices and really stomping out that energy in community. Now we're isolated in these little boxes, suppressed by a, a society that's built upon disconnection, trauma, isolation. 
And many of us don't have the tools, but the, what's very beautiful and interesting about this whole thing is the body has the ability and knows what to do when the right guidance and support is there, such as the work of Steve, forgetting his last name, but it's called organic intelligence, very similar to somatic experiencing. And he talks about the natural rhythms of the body and, and the body knows what to do. It knows how to discharge this energy, but we have to get out of the way and we have to actually allow the feelings and the sensations to come in and, and while we feel the support and allow them to move through us. Because once again, many of us are coming up, the, up against this glass ceiling. And if we feel these feelings, it almost feels like the original trauma. So we, yeah, so we have to begin to let that go. And that's a scary thing to do. For sure. So I guess I have a two-part question. We talked about whenever our feelings are so overwhelming that we just check out, we disassociate, we go into that freeze response. Do people, because again, I'm not an addict or an alcoholic, so I really don't know how this thought process works. So this will be educational for me. Do people who have a propensity towards alcoholism or addiction, do they want to use alcohol or drugs because it helps them to dissociate and it helps them to check out or, and then whenever it's gone and maybe they relapse later because they find themselves in a stressful situation. Again, they haven't done the work around that. They haven't discharged that old energy from their body. So a new stress happens and they don't know how to deal with it. So that only thing they know how to reach for is the drugs and alcohol again. Is it for disassociating? Because I, I know it's for numbing and disassociating is a way that our bodies like numb themselves to feeling whatever is overwhelming for us to feel. Is that how drugs and alcohol and addiction are involved in people trying to self-medicate to try to bring on that disassociation because it's just too much? Yeah, so it's a great question. And from my perspective, some people use drugs and alcohol to connect to. It makes them more social. They can be themselves. They can get on the dance floor. They can connect better per se, but all it always, anything outside of ourselves that we become dependent on always comes with a, it's like a double-edged sword. It comes with a price. So people are using, or the addict always uses the substance for a particular reason. So in my case, I used, here's my hypothesis too. If you look at the polyvagal theory, the work of Dr. Stephen Porges, and he breaks down that we have these three gears, ventral vagal, right? Connected, safe, social engagement. We have sympathetic fight or flight, too much energy. Then we have the red zone, dorsal vagal, not enough energy. I think depending upon how our nervous systems were pruned and wired, depends upon which type of stimulant or relaxant that we choose. Now, for me, I was always sympathetic driven. I was always on the go, couldn't stop, staying busy, even in long-term recovery. And I loved downers because they allowed me to just shift those gears and just settle in and just check out. Now, some people love methamphetamines. They're shut down. They're completely disconnected. So when they do it, they're out and talking and driving and moving. And so that I think that people use substance, whether it's conscious or unconscious, depending upon how their nervous system is, is already wired. Now, once again, to get back to your question, is it, is it 
yeah, some people use it to check out. Some people use it to connect. So it's always doing something, but everyone's different. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm glad you pointed out that some people use it to come alive and get on the dance floor and let loose. For my own experience with my my drug use is limited to like cannabis and psychedelics. I've never used anything other than that, which I don't even consider them to be drugs. I guess I've never used drugs. And then alcohol for me has been like, there have been times in my life where I could go and I could drink with friends and have a good time and maybe catch a buzz and like dance or whatever. But most of the time I really avoid alcohol altogether because like drinking in the moment feels fun or whatever, but then it's not too long after that, that I just, even if I just caught a little buzz and didn't even get drunk or something, I get like anxious and I feel really weird. And sometimes I like wake up in the middle of the night, like really hot. And then I can't go back to sleep after drinking. And so I avoid it altogether, but it's just curious. I don't think I've ever had even the accessibility to like a substance that I, would want to use to, cause I'm like you, like the driven, always going, always doing, like my mind is constantly running, going a million miles an hour. That's my norm. And so anxiety is something that I've struggled with a lot because I'm in that hyper aroused state all the time. And a lot of people drink because it slows everything down. It's a downer, but for me, I've just found like it may work for an hour or two. And then I'm just like right back up feeling even more anxious than I felt before. So it's just interesting how, how that works. Do you have any thoughts on that? On maybe my body just was never, addiction was just never going to be in the plan for me or in the cards for me. Like maybe that's what it is. And, and so I've definitely done other things. Like I've done, I've overworked, I've been a perfectionist. Like I've tried to discharge my ugh, buzz energy in other ways, but just like using substances never, never felt right for me because they never really seemed to give me the outcome that I thought I was going to get. Does that make sense? For sure. And for you to have that like connection and insight and awareness within yourself, is really beautiful, but for the addict or alcoholic, that line is basically non-existent. And whatever happens within the body, which causes the phenomenon of craving, that sets in and the person is off and running. Now, everyone's nervous system is wired and cultivated a little differently. For example, my sister grew up with similar, obviously similar household, same mom and dad. I've had some additional wounding and so forth that she may haven't. She didn't develop addiction. She didn't develop early onset disease. And some people become addicts and alcoholics in the same household and their brothers and sisters don't. So I think it depends upon a lot of, you know, factors, but for example, maybe you got support in different areas, or maybe you came to that realization that alcohol wasn't working for me. So I'm going to switch the bus and, and, and start just working my ass off and achieving that way. I think we're all addicted to something in some way, form or fashion. It doesn't necessarily have to be substances, but yes, it's very complex and everyone's different. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> really good answer. Yeah. It is interesting. I want people listening to hear what you said about you can grow up in identical situations and it will affect every person in that situation differently. And it's so interesting how our nervous systems have different levels of resiliency and flexibility. And 
I, I don't know exactly. I don't know if it's genetic. I don't know if it's the stress of your mother's womb when she was pregnant with you. And maybe if she's more stressed with you than she was with your sister, who knows? Even my own kids, like they act totally differently about things. And I have all kinds of theories as to why that is. But yeah, that's just really interesting. And I want people to understand that even if you feel like you had quote unquote, a great childhood, great parents, but you still have these behaviors and these habits that you can't figure out and you can't sort out. And you're wondering like, I didn't have any big trauma. I wasn't raped. I wasn't abused. I wasn't, I didn't grow up poor or whatever that that's the big misconception. I think about trauma is that it has to be like some major event and not just the water that you're swimming in every day that you're growing up or something. For sure. I've met people in the hospital that I met this one particular gentleman suffering so bad with alcohol, with alcoholism, young guy too. And I asked him what his, what his life was like. And he, he said, you know, my mom was an alcoholic, which obviously in itself has its own trauma, right? When you have an alcoholic parent. And he said, my dad was super successful. And he was a multimillionaire and he was flying around on jets all over the country doing business. And he dropped me off in the best boarding school in the country at ninth grade. And he picked me up at 12th grade. Oh. And I said, wow, like talk about trauma. Yes, everything was provided, played for the best sports teams, best private school, all the money he could have. And yet there was a total disconnect between his caregivers, the ones who were loving him, the ones who needed to be there for him, the ones who were supposed to teach him and really show him that love and, and presence, his parents, and yet they were nowhere to be found. So this isn't, this isn't uncommon. So it's trauma is very misunderstood. And even attachment trauma and the lack of attunement as an infant because your mother possibly may have been too overwhelmed and doesn't um, know or, or can't connect with you or is too, for example, doesn't give you the space as an infant to really connect and have the experience to uh, look around and really take in your environment. But if the mother's energy is too overwhelming, trying to take care of the baby in such a way where the baby can't orientate itself and, and find its balance in its own nervous system, but feels that overactive access energy from the mom that can be traumatizing for the infant. So it's, there's a lot of things, a lot of moving parts happening when we're young and it's not all about war trauma, sexual molestation, physical abuse. It can be attachment trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for clarifying that. So you do support work in hospitals and with people in recovery, right? I, I no longer do that work, okay. but I did that for almost three years uh, for the opiate epidemic in Boston. Okay. What was that like? Well, that was the first couple of weeks I was there. I was like, oh my God, I cannot do this. So being in an emergency room, that energy is very difficult, at least if you're very sensitive like I am. And once again, my other theory is that people who are addicted are all, we're all empaths. So that's another story for another day. But I was taking in all this energy in this hospital of people suffering. And I was like, oh my God, this is overwhelming. And then I just switched the gear, a couple of crystals in my pocket. I asked for protection and I went in there and I was like, I was like a little secret weapon. And what I mean by that is these doctors in a white coat, they do great work and so forth. An emergency room is really helpful when you have a critical trauma, let's just say accident or so forth, but they don't know what to do with drug addicts and alcoholics. They don't listen to them. They don't ask the, them to share what's really going on and how they can really be present. But in, because 
alcoholics and addicts have experienced more trauma than most people. We're very hypervigilant. We know who's looking out for our best interest. We know who we can trust and who we can't trust. So when a lot of these people who come in habitually over and over again, street drug addicts, some of the worst addicts you, you can possibly see, abscesses in their arms, just amazing things that they go through. And they know who's actually looking out for them. They know when the doctor's just pushing them off and trying to clear out their emergency bed for someone else. And they know when someone else is listening to them. So if I shared a couple of stories with you, you would be floored of what I actually listened to in that emergency room. For example, the 70 year old woman who came in, she was a drunk and she would, she, she'd been drinking for decades. And I said, tell me a story a little bit, if that's okay. And obviously I, I didn't probe and I didn't probe people or poke them too much. I just gave them the space to, to share if they wanted to. And she said, my first lover left for Vietnam and I was in love with this man, first love I've ever had. And his head got chopped off by a rotor blade in a helicopter. And that was heartbreaking. So I listened to her and then she said, I, and then I married this guy who was so abusive to me. And I had this child that in her twenties, she got caught in the MBTA bus, her jacket did, and she got dragged and thrown into a column. And she, now she's taking care of her child that had a broken back. So I looked at her and I said, of course you're drinking. You're in a lot of pain, all this pain that was never resolved. And she looked at me like I had just found the fountain of youth or the elixir. It was like someone listening to her and making sense of her story. I, I can't tell you the stories that you wouldn't even believe them, but yeah, it was deep work. It was a privilege to be in there with them. And it was difficult at the same time. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Holy shit. That's intense. It was intense. So whenever you were working with people like in the emergency room, were you part of a process of getting them into treatment or getting them some kind of support or well, how did that work? Yeah. So I was there basically as a recovery coach to listen to them and to find them inpatient or outpatient support once they got discharged from the hospital. So they would go into their there, they would get all their vitals checked out. They would sometimes stay there for quite a few hours to detox or if they needed some specific medication so they wouldn't withdraw. And then I would be there to support them after the fact when they were ready for discharge. And I would support them with, with aftercare uh, treatment. And a lot of the times it would be supporting them to get into a detox, supporting them to get into some sort of halfway house or a situation that they could begin to get their feet under them. So I wasn't addressing them medically. I'm not a doctor, but there was a big component that I brought in there, which was my training in mind, body healing and compassionate inquiry, and really just listening to them, really just giving them the space to have these moments of aha and say, okay, you're not a piece of shit. You're a human being that's been through a lot of trauma, a lot of difficulty. And much of the time coming from Boston, the, it's so funny because you're not funny, but it's ironic. You could see the generations, generational trauma. And I would ask him, you know, where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Southie, East Boston, this and that. And my father did this and he was part of Whitey Bulger and this. Whitey Bulger was an infamous, notorious gangster back in South Boston. But you could see that they, the, ins the insanity they lived in was normal to them. And there was nothing normal about it, but they were like, oh yeah, just like every other kid on the block. And, and I would listen to that and I'd be like, that's not really normal. And they'd think about it, but it's most people don't even know that they've been brought up in immense dysfunction, neglect and trauma. Yeah. And their nervous systems are so familiar with that level of dysregulation that they can't handle calm and peace 
and safety because their nervous system doesn't know what the fuck to do with that. And that's the beauty of like my work. I, I, I have a client right now, sober, I don't know, probably 30 years from Jamaica plain, right? Old timer. And he's suffering all from unprocessed, unresolved trauma, but he's been sober for 30 years and he doesn't even know what trauma is. And, and I'm just, you know, holding space for him, navigating with him, coaching with him, practicing somatic experiencing with him. And he's like coming alive slowly, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but it's like light dawns on Marblehead. I grew up in a family of six. I was the last one. Everyone beat me to death and criticized me. And he suffers late in his age with an inner critic that's just berating him. Of course you have an inner critic that's berating you. You had a household in a family constellation that was built upon criticizing and judging, right? No, no kidding, of course. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> The world feels like a really unsafe place right now, doesn't it? Everyone is so divided against each other with binary thinking. Right, wrong, good, bad, black, white, black lives matter or white supremacist, Republican, Democrat, everyone is divided. I think it's time for us to break free from the oppression of binary belief systems. In my new course, Belief Beyond the Binary, you'll learn how to identify binary belief systems, why your nervous system is so attracted to them, and how to break free from the binary and choose to show up in your integrity and authenticity by reclaiming your personal sovereignty. When you purchase Belief Beyond the Binary during my pre-sale event before June 24th, you'll receive 30% off the retail price of the course, and I'll gift you a free three-month membership to my online community, The Trauma Healers Circle. Go to lindsaylockett.com forward slash BBB to save your spot by June 24th. I can't wait to see you inside the course. So in your work that you did in, in Boston in the hospitals, were you able to open the door towards conversations with your, with those patients or those clients about consciousness and spirituality? Yes. And at the same time, just remember they come in sometimes and just died two hours ago on yeah. a fentanyl overdose. So hearing about consciousness and that type of having the capacity to be in that place to understand that was few and far between, but there were situations where it was a little like less extreme where I could, let's just say I could touch them in that way with their mind and just open it a little bit to say, wow, holy shit, I've been running my whole life and, and, and what's actually going on in the hospital is a very, it was crisis based. So I had to handle that as crisis. And even the work I do with people now who are in long-term recovery, that's a challenge in itself to open them up to the consciousness, to the awareness, because once again, when you have trauma in your nervous system, the last thing you want to do is sit with yourself because everything is there. Everything is uncomfortable. Everything's <laughs> uncomfortable. So no wonder why we use drugs and alcohol. Sometimes I'll have my clients meditate for a couple of minutes if it's appropriate. And it's that they're like squirming, they're shaking, they're rattling, they're rolling. And I, I go, how is it to sit with yourself? And don't get me wrong. I don't support sitting meditation if it's causing more harm. No, but sometimes just let them touch into what's here. And it, it's uncomfortable. I said, no wonder why drugs and alcohol were a solution, right? It's so uncomfortable to be with ourselves. Not that we're bad people, but we have that 
we have the trauma that's in the nervous system. The stories are there, the images are there, the memories are there, the activation is there, the gotta keep going is there. And I only know this stuff because I was the king of it. I had to have a sacred illness to sit me down and cause me to go within myself to have a profound spiritual awakening. Other than that, who knows, I may still have been running today, even in long-term recovery. Yeah. So the people that you work with now, your clients now, are they coming to you already sober mostly? Like you're not actually working with people to get clean at this point. You're working in the long-term recovery. Exactly. I don't work with people that are in active addiction. People come to me who are in recovery and they're like, oh, I see your work or I, I'm experiencing this and, and something's up and I need more than 12-step recovery. I've done all the steps. I've done my four-step, my fifth step. AA is great. I got sober today. I'm not bashing it, but there's more work to do. And this is the healing work. This is the work of addressing, processing, resolving, and integrating what happened and discharging the energy from a nervous system and creating presence for yourself, being able to touch the present moment, creating that container within yourself and that sense of agency to be able to handle what arises in the present moment. And this is the deeper work, doing your parts work, right? Nurturing those, the little boy, the little girl inside of you that was abandoned, that was a betrayed, that was uh, abused or possibly, and just really opening up to like most of us have a wounded little boy or little girl running the show and we don't even know it. And, and it takes a lot of consciousness and awareness to, to shift that. But my first step is to help them create safety in their skin and help them engage in the shift of their own consciousness. Now, what does that mean? When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm. Once again, we talked about victim mode. Right. If you're in victim mode, then it's challenging. It doesn't mean we don't hold space for that part of you that was victimized or that was hurt or betrayed. But once again, how do we empower them to touch into that wholeness that's there too? That functional adult that's there that can hold that part of us that, you know, is holding the burden or the pain. So that's the journey. And as my mentor shared with me, all sickness is homesickness, all healing is self-healing, a journey back home to your true self. So illness can be an opportunity to, or is an opportunity to awaken consciousness, right? Addiction is an opportunity to awaken consciousness. Everything, I truly believe, everything we experience in this reality is in service for our evolution. It just depends if we're awake and taking in the lessons, because this is school, baby. This is this realm is complete in utter school. You are here to learn, you're here to evolve, you're here to break karmic chains, and you are here to do your work. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I was still in Christianity right now, I'd be like, preach. <laughs> You, you, and I'm, I'm excited for you, girl, because I know where you're at. I know how entrenched in how locked up one's mind and sense of self and, you know, sense of the world is when you are bathed in fundamental Christianity or the dogmatic teachings in practices and you know all that world so i commend you i, I shared a little bit after because if you can only imagine my mom's the one that broke free when she was younger she opened pandera's box she was telling the truth and people didn't want to hear it and you're a truth teller and you're and this isn't a, this isn't about jesus sucked or religious sucks or whatever it's really us sharing our experience 
and saying that there's more to the story, people. And, and yeah, you're in prison in a way. So free yourself. And the teachings are about freeing yourself. Yeah. So the fact that you have taken your power back and shifted to your transformational character, which is a person who transforms and shifts in one generation, the whole lineage. And that religious trauma is huge. So kudos to you. Yeah, thanks. That's the plan. Man, that's the plan is I'm going to heal this shit so my kids don't have to deal with it anymore. Of course, they'll have their own work to do for sure. And they're going to have their own struggles. And part of being a, a parent on this consciousness journey is like is recognizing I can tell my kids everything that I know about the nervous system, about discharging trauma from their bodies, feeling their feelings. I, I can tell them everything I know, but really... I know that they're going to have to go through their own dark nights of the soul in order to develop and evolve as the humans that they are. And there's literally, my parenting will not be responsible for that. Anything that I've done will not be responsible for that as part of their journey. And I will always be here to support them and to love them and to show them compassion and kindness and to give them wisdom if they ask for it. But there's, I've just accepted that my kids are going to have their own struggles in this life. And there's nothing I can do as a parent to stop that. And hopefully what I do teach them about trauma and the nervous system and their feelings one day, if they're not listening to me now, hopefully one day they'll wake up in the middle of a really hard time and they'll be like, oh, I remember something my mom told me. (laughs) Try that out. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. And to to have that outlook where you are with your children is is an immense gift for them. And at the same time, stepping out of the way. So the challenges or the suffering that they will experience can allow them to grow and shift and change. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, because it's essential. It's essential part of this human realm to experience the suffering. And we don't change by what we know. We change by how we feel. Yeah, especially for an addict and alcoholic. We've been banging our head against the wall for years, some of us doing the same shit. And eventually what gets us to change is, oh, we feel like shit. Oh, I'm 138 pounds because I'm doing $500 a day worth of the Oxycontins. But this is for other humans too that aren't addicted. We do the same patterns, behaviors until they're ready to be healed. So giving your kids that opportunity and know that they're going to have their own struggle and to just show them that compassion, kindness, be with them. That's beautiful. I, w- I say, I can say this, Lindsay, I wish I had that But me as this being, I don't think that, I don't know if that would have been in service to me. I truly believe, now you guys may fall off your chair when I say this, because I've experienced so much suffering, I think as a soul to evolve, I needed exactly this. I needed to be wasted off multiple chemical sensitivity to where I can't even breathe air for me to wake up. Mm-hmm. So I believe we all get what we need to wake up. Mm-hmm. It just depends if we're really listening and how bad do we want it? Yeah. Yeah. I saw a, it wasn't a meme. It was like one of those things on Instagram with like flowers in the background and text on it. And it said, your comfort zone is a lovely place, but no growth happens there. Yes. As Ad- Adashanti says, comfort doesn't lead to awakening. Yeah. Yeah. We got... That's why my mantra for my life is I am comfortable being uncomfortable because as soon as I start feeling the discomfort, my trauma response is to turn around and go the other way or to fight against it, to try to control it and change it somehow, to try to make it more comfortable for myself. That's where the old asleep 
egoic Lindsay used to live. And now I almost get excited whenever something is uncomfortable. And I still initially have those like feelings of, I just want to get rid of this. I just want this to go away. I want to change this. I want to control this. I want to manipulate this to be different than it is. I still have that going on. But whenever I like sit with that and then lean into the discomfort even more, it's almost bring it the fuck on. This is how I am leveling up. Like I don't get to level up without discomfort. And so the more I can lean into it, the more I'm evolving as a person and growing as a person. And yeah, my comfort zone is a lovely place, but no growth happens there. For sure. And even to normalize that a little bit for you, like this is a human condition. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. This is a human condition. Yeah. And great teachers, for example, the Buddha, this is what he taught. Life has suffering. Life has dukkha, right? The, the unsatisfactoriness is always here, right? We're always wanting the present moment to be other than it is, or if only I had that, or if only I had what she had, or a million dollars, or a body like that, or it was like this. It's That's the never-ending wheel of samsara. And until we begin to see that within our own heart and mind and actually work with it at the level of both mind-body, because they're not separate, and allow what comes up when those resistances happen, allow it to pass through our body and our psyche, right? To hold space. This is when we begin to awaken the Buddha. Mm -hmm. This is when we begin to awaken that Christ mm -hmm. consciousness. And we begin to hold the all the experiences of life and understand they're all in flux. It's all in motion. So grabbing on to any of it is like trying to grab onto smoke. Everything has its birth its life and its death. But many of us don't have the awareness of this and permanent nature of all things. Mm -hmm. Once again, this is why consciousness is the cure to addiction. Because when you awaken this consciousness within you, this wisdom that can cut through this illusion that some pill powder or potion is gonna change the state and get them somewhere else to solve a problem. Like immediately that just begins to get burnt up and you can come back to this. And this is all about the aspect of awakening. This is awakening this mind and awakening this heart. So it's really beautiful, but this is the journey I think that we're all on. Yeah, so great. As we close out here for, if anyone is listening right now and they're, uh, in recovery, but feeling like maybe 12 steps isn't taking them as far as they want to go, or they're feeling like they're in recovery and they're sober, but they haven't started doing the deeper work. What would you tell them? I would say you're not alone, right? Where you are is exactly where you're supposed to be. And how can you begin to listen to the part of you that is searching for something deeper that knows it needs to make some shifts and changes? and just begin to understand that there's many roads to Rome. All these rivers lead to the ocean. So there's someone out there, maybe me, maybe someone else to support you to get from where you are now to where you wanna be. We just have to begin to get support and begin to dip our toes in another place to really birth what it is we're looking for. Yeah. We got to at least let ourselves get a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Widen that window of tolerance just a little bit. So how can people work with you if they would like to have some support on their journey? 
So right now I offer uh, one-on-one coaching support in my program called Healing Beyond Recovery. You can find me at mikegavoni.com, M-I-K-E-G-O-V-O-N-I. I think you can put that in the show notes. I too also have a podcast called the Healing Beyond Recovery podcast. And if you go to my website and check it out or just click apply now, uh, that will lead you to book a complimentary call with me. I'd be more than happy to connect with you. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram on at Mike Gavoni, M-I-K-E-G-O-V-O-N-I. Amazing. Thanks so much for being here, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right, friends, as always, you can find the show notes for this episode at lindsayluckett.com forward slash podcast. This is episode 42. And one more reminder that my new course, Belief Beyond the Binary, has gone on sale for pre-sale. You can buy the course now before June 24th and you will save 30% off the retail price. And as my gift to you, I want to give you a free three-month membership to the Trauma Healer Circle as a way to say thank you for buying the course, but also as a way to give you support while you go through the course. So you can bring your questions and concerns and truths that you discover about yourself, about binary belief systems, and all the other things that I teach in this course, and you'll have a community to take those questions to or those ideas to. When you save your seat for Belief Beyond the Binary, you get 24 lessons in six modules that includes 10 videos, 18 deeply healing journaling prompts, embodiment practices, a guided visualization. You get instant and forever access to Belief Beyond the Binary as soon as it releases on June 24th, and that includes any future updates or improvements that I may make to the course. It is yours forever in all its forms. And in the course, I'm going to be talking about binary belief systems. These are things like cult-like ideologies, fundamentalist ideologies, dogmas. I use the term binary belief system during the course to encompass the binaries of fundamentalist religion, woke divism, the alt-right, Um, and all the other binary belief systems that are out there that most of us are living under the oppression of, and we may not even realize it. So you're going to learn to identify binary belief systems and how they've been at work in your life. And I'm going to be calling out some binary belief systems and giving you real practical examples of what they are so that you know what to look for. And by the end of module one, you will have developed (laughs) amazing spidey senses for how to identify binary belief systems so that you can stay far, far, far away. And then in modules two and three, we talk about the nervous system and trauma responses and why binary belief systems are so appealing and attractive to our nervous systems. Um, There's a lot of just science woven in there, a lot of talk about trauma responses. It's a really great couple of modules. And then in the fourth module, we're talking about how social media fuels binary belief systems. And so we have these algorithms that are creating echo chambers out of our feeds every day. And then whenever we're introduced to an idea that we don't like or we don't agree with, it feels like a threat in our body. And a lot of people are operating in a very dysregulated, activated nervous system state on the internet. And I believe it's making 
the internet kind of like the wild west um, where everyone's making up the rules as they go and um, it's a, kind of an unsafe place to be right now. And so module four is going to talk about how social media boosts binary belief systems and you're going to have the opportunity to, you know, do some reflections on how you've shown up online, how you've been affected by showing up online and choose who you want to be online and be in your integrity and your authenticity. And then in module five, I'm talking about breaking free from the binary. So this module is going to include embodiment practices. There's several journaling prompts in this module. And it's all about just breaking free physically. There's some somatic experiencing um, mentally, emotionally with the embodiment practices like this module is going to give you nervous system healing tools. And I'm all about building a trauma healing toolbox. So module five is trauma healing tools. You're going to love that module. And then finally in module six, we're talking all about boundaries and how to set and stick to your boundaries with friends, family members, and loved ones or social media followers who are still under a binary belief system, but they aren't yet ready to break free themselves. It can be really tricky to navigate relationships professionally, personally, and online because when people storm into your DMs or your email or your inbox or your comment section or wherever they storm into, they come carrying all of this dysregulation and activation in their bodies and they're taking it out on you and on other people that you follow. And I know that everyone has experienced this to some degree. So module six is all about setting boundaries with those people. Um, establishing that we are our own moral authority. We are not accountable to the internet. And also how to have conversations with family members or friends who are still in a binary belief system and who think that you have lost your mind or that you have committed some grave sin by choosing to leave or not follow the binary anymore. So that's an overview of Belief Beyond the Binary. I'm so excited for it to release on June 24th. And if you purchase it during the pre-sale, which is from now until June 24th, you can take 30% off the retail price. You don't have to use a coupon code or anything. The discount is already there for you. And when you purchase before June 24th, you get a free three-month membership to my online community, The Trauma Healer Circle. So head to lindsaylockett.com forward slash BBB. That's three letter Bs as in boy. And you can learn more about Belief Beyond the Binary and go ahead and save your spot before June 24th. And I believe that's all I have for you today. I can't wait to see you inside the course. And I truly hope this episode and the course and all of my work is supportive on your journey. Thanks for being here. Did you enjoy the show? Awesome. Here's what you can do next. First, make sure you're subscribed. Second, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few moments to rate the podcast. Finally, you can partner with me to keep putting this healing information into the world. For just $5 per month, you will help keep the show ad-free and freely available. If you want to go deeper and connect with me and other trauma healers in community, 
I invite you to join the Trauma Healers Circle. This community is where the magic happens. You get access to bonus podcast episodes, monthly Zoom calls, and most importantly, you'll find your people. Go to lindsaylockett.com forward slash circle to join.